You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you now to open God's Word to the New Testament writings, to the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We will read verses 1 through 17 of Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This morning, the special focus of the sermon will be on verses 1 and 2 of the passage we read in Colossians 3. And I'll read them a second time. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's been a couple of months ago already since we celebrated Easter together as a congregation. It's the custom of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ to do that every year in the springtime of the year. And I think it's fair to say that Easter is probably one of the real highlights of the ecclesiastical year. People look forward to it. It's a time of great festivity and joy among the people of God as we celebrate His great victory over all the power of death. But what happens after Easter? 
what kind of long-term impact does the announcement of Christ's resurrection from the dead really have on our day-to-day lives? Maybe some of you would say, well, the, the one thing that, that Easter really does for me is it renews my hope for the future. When we gather together as God's people at Easter time, then, then my confidence that I will be raised even as Jesus was raised from the dead is strengthened. The empty tomb of Jesus tells us that the grave does not have the last word in our lives. And that certainly is a long-term impact upon us. So, though, a person might ask the question, what, what about today? What about the practicalities of our lives today? What about our relationships? What about our work? What about our studies? What about our cultural involvement and our political engagement? In what way does the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ impact all of these ongoing challenges of our daily lives? Well, the answer of the Bible to those kind of questions is that Christ's resurrection makes all the difference. Christ's resurrection from the dead means, brothers and sisters, that you all together as God's people have an entirely new and different way of living. A different way of doing relationships. A different way of being married. A different way of being families. A different way of working. A different way of going to school. A different way of being engaged with the world that God created. Indeed, the radical message of the Bible is that we are nothing less than people of the resurrection. And therefore, we are called and we are empowered to live already today resurrection lives. Lives that display the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I may bring to you the Word of God this morning that the Lord Jesus calls believers to live as people of the resurrection. And we'll pay attention first to the reality of resurrection life and secondly to the responsibilities of resurrection life. First then, we we talk about the reality of resurrection life. To better understand what our text is talking about, we can contrast what, what I am calling resurrection life with what might be labeled the moral life. When we read Colossians as a whole, and that would be a good thing for you to do sometime on this Lord's Day, it's not a very long letter, and when you do that exercise and and just go through it from beginning to end, you can see that the Apostle Paul was struggling against a certain tendency in the church at Colossae. There were people in Colossae, teachers in the church who, who were having a lot of influence, These teachers were very upright and moral people. These Christian moralists, as I'm calling them, seem to have a Jewish background, and they were trying to impose all kinds of rules and regulations upon the church at Colossae. They did have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, at least that's what they said. But at some level, they they were insinuating that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not sufficient to attain true godliness. If you want to be a truly godly person, if you want to have a life that is truly pleasing to your Creator, 
then faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not enough. You need something more than just the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In addition to Christ, you need things like Jewish feast days. You need things like Jewish food laws. You need Jewish circumcision. You need the Jewish Sabbath day. You need the Jewish traditions. And you need the Jewish practices that had accumulated for a couple of millennia. And these Christian moralists in Colossae had had put the whole thing together in, in an attractively packaged system of doctrine and ethics. And it was attracting a lot of attention in the church at Colossae. Now, we don't have these kind of Jewish moralists in our congregation today. We don't have people trying to impose Old Testament rules and Jewish traditions upon us. But I put it to you this morning, brothers and sisters, that we do experience similar tendencies. If you ask Christian people today what the secret is to genuine godliness, I think you'll probably get a lot of different answers. Some people will say, well, the secret to, to being really godly is to, to engage more frequently in prayer. Or other people will say, what you need to do if you want to achieve growth in being a God-pleasing person is meditate more frequently on Scripture. Have your Bible open more often and, and reflect on it and perhaps memorize many verses. Other people will say that the secret to genuine godliness is to get up really early in the day, maybe an hour before you have to leave for work or school, and spend that hour in time with God. And then there are many people today who say that what really helps them in their sanctification is, is Christian music. Or else you should go to a conference with a famous speaker who, who is inspiring power. And if you hang out in charismatic circles, then people will tell you that what you really need in order to be godly is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You need the gift of tongues or of prophesying. And when you have that, you'll have power for godliness too. And then there are those in our culture too, also in our ecclesiastical culture, who feel that the way to be godly is just learn to say no more often. Just say no to the movies. Just say no to the music. Just say no to the television. Just say no to contemporary fashions. Stop doing this and stop doing that, and and pretty soon you'll be a lot closer to God than you used to be. You'll have the power of godliness by by saying no to everything virtually that's contemporary. Now, there's no reason to mock the efforts of Christian moralists because, in fact, there is an element of truth in much of what they are saying. But still, though, if you were to take up my suggestion and, and actually read the letter of Paul to the Colossians from beginning to end some time on this Lord's Day, you'd find out that the Apostle has nothing good at all to say about the Christian moralists of his time. Just to give you a bit of a taste of Paul's opinion about this, he says in Colossians 2, verse 4, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Christian moralists have that beautiful package of doctrine and ethics. It's very impressive, and they were really gaining adherence. But Paul says... Don't let anyone deceive you with these fine-sounding arguments. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now, that's not a reference to Greek philosophy or Roman philosophy. That's a reference to the teaching of these Christian moralists who are actually already having impact on the church at Colossae. And then towards the end of chapter 2, in verse 23, the apostle gives a scathing indictment about all the rules. Just look at the rules mentioned in verse 21 and following. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And then Paul writes about these rules in verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship. But then at the end of the verse, he adds, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They have an appearance of wisdom. It sounds wise to have all these rules added to the gospel. It sounds careful. It sounds pious. It sounds like the safe way to go. But the Apostle Paul says, well, look, those things have the appearance of wisdom. That, that's what you would think in a human way is the right way and the safe way. But you can add as many rules as there are rules in the world. You can add rule upon rule, a regulation upon regulation. But these things have no power of restraining the passions and desires of the flesh. You see, you can have all the rules in the world in your life. And maybe they'll protect you from some outward, overt indecencies and the like. But you know, all the rules and regulations in the world cannot finish off monsters like pride and selfishness and coveting and ingratitude and discontent and idolatry and greed and envy and lust. You know, there isn't a rule in the world that can do anything about these disordered human passions that are at the heart of all the misery in your life and in the life of the world. To finish off monsters like these, brothers and sisters, you need something much greater than just rules and regulations. Rules and regulations can keep, keep all these monsters caged up for a while, but eventually they break out again and they wreak havoc in your life all over again. And so having exposed in chapter 2 the emptiness of the Jewish moralists with their ambitious ethical program of change, in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gets on with reminding the believers in Colossae of the true source of godliness, the true power for living a God-pleasing life. And that power we learn from the Apostle Paul is nothing less than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the, dead, from the dead. To know Christ. To know Him as Christ crucified, and especially to know Him as Christ risen. That congregation is something that gives you all the power you need for life and godliness. Which is exactly what Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1. You have all that you need for life and godliness in the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so not rules heaped upon rules, not regulations upon regulations, not an ever more elaborate moral code. No, what you need 
for a God-pleasing life is very simply a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A relationship characterized by faith and trust in Him. And a relationship which brings to you the astonishing blessing of an actual life communion with Jesus Christ. And when you have that bond with the Lord Jesus Christ as the risen one, then you have the secret power for life and godliness. Now, the exact way in which Paul says things here in verse 1 may surprise you. Verse 1 does not say, since then you will be raised with Christ. Verse 1 says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Paul wants you to identify yourselves. He wants you to have the self-image of people who have already been raised with Christ. Paul wants you to understand that when God the Father raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, gave His Son glorious new life, this was not done in isolation. This was done also with you in mind. When Jesus Christ rose, you who are His people were raised with Him, which means that His new life is also our new life. Really, this teaching is breathtaking and incredible that we who sit quietly in our pews this morning after hopefully a good sleep in our comfortable beds, we can live each moment of our lives, waking or sleeping, in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. At this very moment, we may identify ourselves, we may regard ourselves as people who are one with Him in His resurrection glory. And if you ask, how does that happen? How is this brought about that we who, who are here in this place at this time, how is it brought about that we are actually one with the risen Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer would be that this takes place through the mysterious and secret and hidden work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the bond between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. The same Spirit who dwells in Christ as our head, also dwells in us as the members and imparts to us the life of our head. Just think of the imagery of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 15 where He says, I am the vine and you, my believers, are the branches. And as long as you abide in Me, which points to that life union through the power of the Holy Spirit, as long as you abide in me, you bring forth much fruit. And so you see the secret again for real, genuine Christian loving is not rule upon rule, not regulations, not this ever-elaborated moral code. The secret is very simply that we continue to abide in Jesus Christ by a true and living faith. Do you see how different the teaching of the Bible is from that of pure moralism? Humans have, it seems, a hankering for moralism. Society seems to fluctuate between times of lawlessness followed by times of increasing strictness and regulation of life. 
by all those in authority, including religious authorities, that we have the seesaw fact in history. Moralism is a human answer to a human problem. It's an answer that is based in human potential and human abilities, human resolve and human courage. The Bible says that's not the way for genuine transformation. The genuine transformation of life comes not by accepting a whole package of rules. Genuine transformation of life comes as we abide in the vine, the living Lord Jesus Christ. Having seen then the reality of resurrection life through union with Jesus, let's go on to speak about the responsibilities of resurrection life. The Apostle Paul spells these things out at this, in the second half of verse 1 when he says, Set your hearts on things above. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. And then again in verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so what we notice in this section is a contrast between heavenly and earthly. There are things above on which we should set our hearts and minds, and then there are earthly things which we should avoid. How are we to understand that contrast between heavenly and earthly? Well, there's a strong tradition in Christianity of of understanding this in a kind of a pietistic way. The reasoning then would be to set your hearts and things above means to to be as heavenly-minded as you possibly can, to to not be concerned about this world and all its events and structures and historical development. Just just leave that all aside as much as you can and, and just think about heaven. Think about the angels. Think about the 24 elders. Think about Jesus in His glory at the right hand of God and and just leave behind all these earthly things. After all, heaven's a beautiful place. The streets are paved with gold. There's never-ending peace and joy and worship. And so, so why think about the earth with all its sin and sorrow? People who read the text in this way, of course, they won't be too interested in the present world. They're pining for heaven. And so they don't get involved much in this world either. They feel that it's better to just keep your distance from human culture and human life in general, to not have too many attachments to this life, and just spend as much time as you can in prayer and singing and worshiping God. And I put it to you that people who have inherited this, this pietistic way of reading our text they won't be very much interested in things like justice and peace on earth today. They won't care that much about the environment. They won't care that much about a Christian view of education, a Christian view of science. They won't worry about developing technologies and art. Who would bother with art? Art is just a passing thing, and we have to set our eyes on the things that are above. And so why waste your time doing paintings and sculptures and the like when you could be witnessing, you could be evangelizing, and so on? But you know, however enticing and however natural this way of looking at the text may seem to some of us, it's actually not biblical. It's the wrong understanding of what Paul is talking about here when he sets up this contrast between earthly and heavenly. 
And it's probably because of this wrong understanding of the text that people in the world sometimes say about Christians that they're so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. To show that Paul is not, in fact, advocating here disengagement from the world, to show that he's not promoting disinterest in human culture, we just need to look at verse 5, where the apostle writes as follows. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Notice again the word earthly. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So if you want to know what Paul means by earthly, there it is. Paul doesn't mean the planet Earth. He doesn't mean human culture in general. He doesn't mean science and education and art and all the like. He doesn't mean music. Now, when Paul talks about earthly, when he says that we, we should set our minds on things, things above and not on earthly things, this is what he means. Immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry. And similarly in verse 8, now you must get rid of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And verse 9, do not lie to each other. You see, that's what Paul means by earthly. And we shouldn't set our minds in those earthly things, those sinful things. And he calls them earthly because, well, that's what we mostly find on earth today. And so if earthly things are are simply sinful actions and sinful attitudes and sinful behaviors, then, then what are the things above that Paul says we should set our hearts upon? Well, to work this out, notice with me, brothers and sisters, that Paul connects the things above with the presence of Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So Paul wants you to reflect on the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, the right hand of God. And the Apostle Paul wants you to reflect upon the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God as your brother in the flesh. He's not there as a pure spirit being. He's not there as an angel. He's there as a human being. He's there as a risen Christ, gloriously alive human. A human being who is righteous. A human being who is good. A human being who is fully the image of God. And therefore, a human being who is fully able to to rule over all the works of God just like God called Adam and Eve to do in the very beginning of history when He made them in His own image. He made them righteous and holy and and connected that with their task of, of being stewards and developers of His beautiful creation. And if you want a fuller picture of what Paul means by the things that are above, then you can go to verse 12 of this same chapter. And there you find a list of virtues, a list of Christian virtues. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love. Well, when you think of that list of Christian virtues, congregation, then doesn't that make you think of the one person in the world who, who actually displays those virtues fully and comprehensively and pervasively in all that he is and does. That list of virtues is, 
is meant to awaken in you awareness of the Lord Jesus, the risen one. This is who he is. This is the kind of man he is, characterized by all these wonderful virtues of compassion, kindness, and the like. And so when Paul says to set our hearts on things that are above, he's not encouraging escapism. He's not encouraging retreat from the world, just letting the world go to hell in a handbasket. No, what Paul is doing is encouraging us to focus on Jesus Christ, the risen one, fully and gloriously alive as a true human being. And Paul says that we need to live out of our faith unity with him so that his image becomes evident in our lives. And as his image becomes evident in our lives, then then we don't have a desire to escape from the planet and from culture and civilization. No, then we have a desire to do what Adam and Eve were created to do in the beginning. Then we want to rule God's creation righteously. We want to be stewards. We want to be involved in our culture and our world and its development. But we want to be involved as people who are united to Christ and live by the power of His Spirit. Now, there's one more thing to draw out here, and that's the detail that Paul offers at the end of verse 1, where he speaks about Christ being seated at the right hand of God. You know what that is? That's, that's a reference to his sovereignty. The right hand of God is the position of authority and sovereignty and dominion. Jesus Christ is sovereign over all human governments. He's sovereign over all human history. He's sovereign over all the details of your life and mine. Sovereign over the demons. Sovereign over the devil. And what does that mean for you as a Christian today? Well, congregation, if you are united through faith to that risen Lord Jesus Christ who is sovereign over all the works of God, then you cannot be controlled by any creature. You can't be ruled by any creature. You can't be controlled by the devil. You can't be ruled by demons. You can't be unduly influenced by wicked people. That's impossible, for you are united by faith to a Lord Jesus who is completely sovereign over all the works of God. So that instead of being controlled by all kinds of created things, which can generate so much fear and oppressiveness and problems for us, we can just stand fast. We can stand firm in the freedom which Christ has obtained for us. Freedom from condemnation, freedom from bondage of all kinds. We can resist and overcome sin. We can resist and overcome the devil. We can resist and overcome the world because by faith we're united to the sovereign Lord of this whole world. From all of this, you can see again how different mere morality is from Christian living. Morality is just a human thing. Morality depends on human abilities and human powers. Morality aspires, we might say, toward union with God. The harder we try, the closer we get to God. But Christian morality turns that upside down. Christian morality says we start out 
with union with Christ. That's not the object of our endeavors to be united to Him. That is the very beginning of our endeavors. And if we don't have that foundation in place, then we might as well not even try. Because apart from union with Christ, we cannot do one thing that pleases the Lord. And so to sum up, what is the way to true godliness for you? And young people, boys and girls, what is the the pathway to a life that pleases God for you? All your parents' rules and your school rules, they have a place. They sometimes are needed to keep you safe from doing damage to yourself. But they're not the secret to genuine godliness. The secret to genuine godliness is that you know Jesus Christ. That you know Him personally, not just through your dad and mom and not just culturally because you've heard about the good news, but that you actually know Him in terms of your own trust in Him you are engaged with Him, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are united to Him. Well, when you live this way, people of God, then Easter will not be a once-a-year event. And then even Sunday won't be a once-in-a-week day of remembering the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. No, if you live this way, then all of life becomes resurrection living. Here on earth, in the midst of our lives, in all their complexity, in our youth, in our middle age, in our old age, in our jobs, in our retirement, in our families, in our schools, on our soccer teams, in our musical education, in our companies and careers, in all of these complex facets of human life, we are to live out the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is divine. We are the branches. And as often as we are united to Him by true faith, we will bear much fruit. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.